Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are very excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with good old Joe Biden and his trying to push Saudi Israel normalization. Yeah, the uh, Biden administration seems bound and determined to keep bashing its head into this wall, no matter uh, how futile the effort might be. But uh, they sent uh, another high-level delegation to Saudi Arabia toward the end of last week. This one included National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Brett McGurk, who has been uh, is currently the National Security Council Middle East Coordinator and has been advising presidents badly about the Middle East since I think George W. Bush, if not before. Uh, And uh, the White House Energy Advisor, Amos Hochstein, so a a fairly high-level team, went to discuss various issues, I suppose, with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, but it seems clear that uh, the center of attention was the possibility of normalizing relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. This has been a goal of the administration for quite some time. Uh, They view it as a way to build upon but also exceed the supposed success of the Abraham Accords that the Trump administration orchestrated because, of course, Saudi Arabia is the big get here. uh, Big success. Big success. uh, Right, right. Big, big, uh, big success in terms of, you know, getting Israel and and, uh, any Arab country on the same page. Tom Friedman, friend of this show, I'm sure, and somebody that that I know you read regularly, Danny, uh, reported in his column about the visit and suggested that what was on the table, what the administration was considering, was a demand from the Saudis for essentially a NATO-like security agreement, so an Article 5-type arrangement, mutual defense treaty, where the U.S. would be obliged to come to Saudi Arabia's defense by treaty uh, in case of some sort of dust-up in the Middle East. That's where things stand. I think the administration is still considering this. Laura Rosen, who writes a, a very good uh, substack on uh, kind of diplomatic foreign policy news, uh, reported on the visit and uh, spoke with a number of experts who all seem to agree that this is a non-starter, even if the Biden administration decides, okay, let's bind ourselves to the Saudis in this way and make their wars our wars, which we effectively, I suppose, do anyway. Uh, but this would include, you know, access to, uh, gr- you know, greasing the wheels for the Saudis to get more advanced U.S. weapon systems, F-35s, I'm sure. And, and uh, it would also probably include some provision for a Saudi civilian nuclear program that the U.S. would help stand up, which is, of course, a uh, genuine risk for nuclear proliferation because the the Saudis have been somewhat cagey about this, but they never actually denied uh, some interest in nuclear weapons. So there's a lot, lot to recommend against this. But even if the Biden administration were to decide, okay, it's worth all this risk just for the for whatever reason, to achieve Israel's Saudi normalization and uh, throw the Palestinians further under the bus, by the way. It, the, the political climate toward the Saudis is so negative in Washington and in Congress uh, that it seems unlikely they would be able to 
actually achieve this legislatively. Now, uh, one of the people that Laura Rosen spoke with, Faraz Maksad, suggested that the Saudis know this and they don't want to actually do normalization with Israel, at least not right now, when it would benefit Biden or in theory would benefit Biden politically. Uh, and so they're asking for the moon, basically knowing that they're not going to get it and that this is a way to to delay the process rather than an actual legitimate demand on the Saudis part. But anyway, that's that's where things stand. For some reason, this is the idea that will not die no matter how uh, bad it is. Uh, it still lives on in the hearts of uh, of members of this administration. I mean, I hope it goes through. I want America's sons and daughters to die for Mohammed bin Salman. Um, Derek- I think everybody would be would be okay <laughs> with that. But uh, yeah. L- Let's talk about uh, Sudan and what's going on in terms of humanitarian effects there. Yeah, there's just a brief update here. The The war itself or the conflict itself, I don't want to maybe call it a war. Uh, people are trying to avoid that terminology. But the conflict between the military and the rapid support forces uh, is continuing at, uh, you know, basically the same through over basically the same uh, kind of course that it has been for several weeks. And I, I don't think there's any real need to to go into the details there there or what details are available but uh, in terms of the humanitarian situation the UN Food and Agriculture Organization on Wednesday noted that now uh, over 20 million people in Sudan which is more than 40% uh, of Sudan's population are experiencing what they called high levels of acute food insecurity this is about twice as many uh, as we're facing that similar situation last year now Sudan and and really uh, that entire part of Africa heading, you know, going east into the Horn of Africa has been uh, facing severe drought and famine for a number of years now. They've had several rainy seasons in a row that have been uh, subpar and that's having a cumulative effect on food supplies and, and uh, you know, just generally quality of life. Um, so that explains why there were already 10 million people or so facing this uh, this crisis uh, last year, but certainly the conflict now that has broken down any semblance of order or government in Sudan has uh, exacerbated things quite a bit. In terms of the number of people displaced, which who are among those most acutely in need of humanitarian relief, obviously, uh, the UN now estimates there are about 4 million people that have been displaced. Uh, by the conflict, uh, uh, around a million of them have made it out of Sudan into other countries, Chad and uh, Egypt in particular, uh, some into South Sudan, but surrounding uh, countries that surround Sudan. Around 3 million are displaced internally and are sort of, uh, you know, looking for a place to settle down that's out of the way of the fighting, which continues to expand geographically. So that's uh, somewhat of a losing battle, I fear, for them. Thanks, Derek. Uh, Let's talk about what's been going on in Niger uh, after the coup and the possibility of military intervention. Yes, uh, the junta that took power last week uh, began to take shape sort of over the weekend, Friday and into the weekend. The leader of the or the commander, former commander, I guess now of the uh, Nigerian Presidential Guard, Abdurrahman Tiani, who was previously identified as Omar Chiani in uh, Western media, but sent out a little press release that had his name uh, nicely uh, spelled out in English for everybody. So Abdurrahman Tiani has declared himself the head of state 
uh, of Niger. He is the head of the junta government that now, or junta that now rules that country. Uh, he cited Niger's deteriorating security situation as the reason for overthrowing President Mohamed Bazoum, uh, which uh, is basically the same justification that the juntas in Mali and Burkina Faso uh, used when they took power and overthrew their civilian governments. There is a still circulating rumor, which uh, I, I believe we've talked about, that Bazoum was about to fire Tiani, and that was really the, the main motivator uh, behind the coup. In terms of the international response, uh, the lead uh, or uh, sort of the leading organization kind of taking taking this on has been the economic community of West African states. They have imposed sanctions against members of the junta. They've imposed sanctions against Niger itself, uh, which is in some cases uh, fairly crippling. For example, the Nigerian government has cut off electricity supplies to Niger, which is uh, is uh, fairly harsh. The group ECOWAS has sent a number of delegations to Niger to try and discuss uh, the situation with the junta, and it is maintaining, which is somewhat interesting now that we're you know a week plus out from this, uh, maintaining its demand that the junta step down and put Bazoum uh, return Bazoum to power. It's threatening military intervention if that doesn't happen. It gave the junta, I believe, over the weekend, it gave the junta a week to uh, remove themselves from power and put Bazoum uh, back in charge. So that's going to run out in a, in a couple of days here. That, that deadline is going to hit in a couple of days. Uh, I'm, I'm increasingly thinking there is the possibility here for a conflict, and uh, really it would be a regional conflict. ECOWAS has in the past made threats like this, but they, they don't typically intervene. They didn't intervene in Mali. They didn't intervene in Burkina Faso. They imposed sanctions. Uh, they demanded a relatively quick transition period back to civilian governance. But this seems a little bit different. The, the group's response has been more strident this time. They are really kind of waving this military intervention stick around. Now, if it comes to that, uh, I think the the reason would be partly because ECOWAS has been so ineffectual in the face of the coups in Mali and Burkina Faso. The 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 leaders of the remaining ECOWAS countries that are still active in that in that organization and officials in ECOWAS feel like their credibility has been shot as a result, and so now they have to make some sort of demonstration. They have to make uh, Niger an example. Uh, of their willingness to do something when there's a military coup. What seems likely to happen if there is an intervention, if there is some kind of invasion, is that Mali and Burkina Faso will get involved as well. Both of those juntas pledged to support Niger if there's some sort of um, attempt to, to go in militarily and, and move the junta out. So this could turn into a, a, a fairly substantial regional conflict fairly quickly. Now, none of those countries has a particularly overwhelmingly dominant or powerful military. So for ECOWAS, especially if Nigeria is involved, there's been talk of getting Chad involved, although Chad is also run by military hunters, so I don't know that they would want to necessarily set that precedent. But ECOWAS should have a, a, you know, greater level of military capability still. Nevertheless, I think it would be a, a, a serious 
conflict, it would probably not be over quickly. So, uh, you know, that's something to watch. And uh, my my gut instinct is always that people aren't going to be stupid enough to start wars. But uh, I've been wrong in the past, as people know. Uh, so I'm I'm somewhat worried that, that that's where things could be heading. Elsewhere, in terms of the international response, the French government has been way out in front in terms of responding to the coup by getting, for example, French and European nationals out of the country. Uh, I think they, knowing the way that the uh, coups in Burkina Faso and Mali went, uh, where they turned very anti-French and anti-West in a hurry, they're trying to get out ahead of that and get people out of the country. The U.S. government is threatening aid cuts. It has suspended military cooperation with the with Niger. Uh, it is uh, evacuating non-emergency personnel and their families from the embassy in Yameh. But uh, beyond that, the, the Washington still won't call what happened a coup, even though it was obviously by the strict dictionary definition, the term a coup. Uh, still won't do that because that would trigger automatic. Uh, sanctions, automatic repercussions, and and they're not prepared. To, the Biden administration is not prepared to go down that road as yet. There have been protests, uh, particularly in Yame, in favor of the coup. Uh, of course, uh, as I talked about with Alex Thurston last week, you don't know if those are genuine, spontaneous demonstrations or if the junta is paying people to go out on the streets and uh, make some noise in their favor. Who knows? Um, but uh, certainly there's enough. If if this is, if this coup does wind up kind of following the same path as, as the previous, the ones in, in Mali and Burkina Faso and kind of an anti-West, anti-French uh, movement, there is certainly plenty of that sentiment in Niger, as there was in those other two countries, uh, to fuel some popular support uh, for the junta. But we really don't know that much yet about what Tiani intends to do. He hasn't talked about it. Um, I, I still suspect that, that this was somewhat hastily thrown together, Tiani fearing for his job or his standing, you know, threw this together and came up with the justifications afterwards, uh, and that he's still not quite hundred percent sure what uh, what he aims to do at this point. Uh, speaking of potentially frozen conflicts, what's been going on in Ukraine? So the Ukrainians claimed Ukrainian defense officials claimed on Monday that their forces had recaptured about fifteen square kilometers of territory uh, in their counteroffensive over the previous week. That included at least one village. Uh, I believe in Donetsk Oblast, I could be uh, wrong about that, but at least one new village falling back into Ukrainian hands. This makes about 200 square kilometers that they've seized since the counteroffensive began in June. Obviously, slow progress. It is progress, uh, but fairly slow and probably coming at a high cost, although we don't have uh, firm casualty figures. Uh, The Ukrainians say that they're still trying to deal with some very well dug in Russian defensive positions heavily, you know, these are heavily mined and, you know, the Russians have had a lot of time to sort of uh, embed themselves in this region and make it very difficult for the Ukrainians who don't have air supremacy. I mean, we've said this before and they don't have even air defenses that can really get to the front line and, and reach uh, Russian aircraft. So the Russians have air superiority here, which doesn't, doesn't help. Uh, so all of those things are combining to make this a, a very slow process. Of some note, off the battlefield in Ukraine, there is uh, apparently going to be a 
peace conference in Saudi Arabia, Ukrainian peace conference later this week, I believe, uh, maybe starting Friday. You can put that in in quotes, I think, the, the concept of or the idea that this is a peace conference because they're not inviting Russia. So it's clearly not an actual peace conference. There will be no peace talks in the way that people normally think of that term. What, what will happen instead is there will be, a, you know, a couple of dozen few, you know, maybe maybe a bit more uh, countries that will send representatives to Saudi Arabia to discuss the Zelensky peace proposal. That's that's it. This obviously isn't going to make any real progress toward uh, toward peace. But what it will do is allow the Ukrainians and Western their Western supporters to I, I, I want to say flatter essentially the Saudis and some other non-aligned governments. I think Brazil's going to send representatives. India will send representatives to to try and show that you know hey we're listening to you guys and we're not you know, taking it for granted. We want you to understand Ukraine's position and really to try to shift the geopolitical dynamic a bit, as we've said many times here, the uh, the general sentiment, especially across much of Africa and, and many Asian countries has been, this isn't our problem. It's not our fight. And so when you, you know, when you want us to support these sanctions against Russia, for example, or to put pressure on Russia, that's just not, you know, why? Why should we uh, stick our necks out and do that? So the, the this effort is still underway, I think, to kind of woo these countries over to Ukraine's side and, and get them to join uh, even if it's only in an economic way to get them to sort of join uh, the anti-Russia coalition. Tarek, speaking of the Global South, have you seen what the American Political Science Association has been doing? I'm sure it's great, whatever it is. So uh, they basically said that they're going to cross a picket line in Los Angeles, but they said they're doing it on behalf of marginalized scholars from the Global South. What? Yeah, it's wild. You have to look into this. It is it is one of the wildest things I've seen recently. At Fantastic. least people are really responding to the bullshit, which shows a change. I think five, six years ago, that might have gotten a pass, but nope. Uh, apparently, uh, standing in non-solidarity <laughs> with workers there's, in Well, LA there's nothing is, that people of the, the global South love more than to be used as a shield by scabs. Yeah, no, that, they love it. Yeah, to, that's for, fantastic for them. I'm so happy for them. It's good for stuff. That. So shout out to APSA. Um, all right, Derek, let's move on to uh, the tensions going on between Poland and Belarus. Yes, uh, tensions have been mounting here ever since the our friends, the Wagner Group, moved into Belarus. The, the Polish government decided immediately that this was a massive security threat and that Wagner, I guess, was going to you know invade Poland or something. Uh, on Tuesday the Polish government deployed additional military units to their eastern border after having accused the Belarusian military of violating Polish airspace, sending uh, apparently a couple or a few military helicopters into Poland. They then, you know, turned around and went back to Belarus. Belarusian officials denied uh, the airspace violation. But this is this is going to be a thing, I think, now that Wagner is in Poland. There, there's a, a drumbeat from the Polish government, but also from other Eastern NATO members that, that Wagner is going to destabilize NATO's Eastern flank. It's a, it's a real threat. What they want, I think is, you know, more NATO deployments in their countries, but I I don't actually entirely understand what it is. They think that Wagner uh, and its few thousand fighters are going to do uh, or whether the Belarusian government is prepared to, uh, basically make itself responsible for an invasion of NATO 
uh, with just a few thousand mercenaries at its disposal. That doesn't seem like something that any sane person would do. But uh, this is the, the the concern, and I think it's something to watch just as another component of uh, what's going on in Ukraine, just this uh, mounting tension and really some to some degree a divergence, I think, between the Eastern NATO members on the one hand who have uh, fairly close ties to the U.S. and, uh, you know, level of military dependence on the U.S. that maybe is not shared necessarily by uh, France or Germany or, or some of the other members of NATO. We could see a, a, something of a divergence in terms of uh, how or some incoherence, let's say, uh, in how NATO is, is reacting to stuff like this. So I guess this is why Prigozhin hasn't responded to our request to become our third Mike. He's got other things going on. He's Yeah, I guess he still thinks he's going to make this mercenary thing go. But podcasting, man, it's easy. Uh, you come on. It's uh, the industry we'll just, of the future. That's right. It's the wave of the future. You know, we'll just throw throw it to you and uh, you don't get shot at. You just sit here and uh, and talk. It's, it's great, man. Uh, Evgeny, if you're listening, uh, please, please <laughs> reach out. As Andy Warhol said, everyone will have 15 minutes of podcast fame. Uh, so let's do some good news. Uh, Brazil deforestation seems to be down. Friend of the pod, Lula, seems to be doing some good stuff. Yes, uh, this was according to the uh, Brazilian Environment Minister, uh, Marina Silva, uh, on Wednesday uh, announced that deforestation had declined by 60% this July compared with last July. Uh, so it would appear after taking a, f- a few months to really ramp back up uh, from the uh, havoc that was wrought by Jair Bolsonaro in terms of decimating the Brazilian government's capacity to enforce environmental regulations, it would appear that Lula's efforts here are really starting to bear fruit. Um, Lula is preparing to host next week uh, officials from eight Amazon countries for a conference on rainforest preservation. So this is, uh, you know, kind of good news to, to preface that conference. He's still calling for uh, a globalized effort to protect rainforests all over the world, which I happen to think is a, is a good idea where essentially developed countries would buy chunks of the rainforest or, or buy, you know, protection for chunks of the rainforest would pay rainforest countries not to exploit these places and destroy the, the, uh, destroy them from an environmental perspective. It makes sense from a, uh, just basic sustainability perspective. It makes sense, you know, good luck, I guess, getting the, the global North to pony up here, but, but that is, uh, what he keeps pushing. Another bit of good news, Colombia and the, and the ELN, the Colombian government and the ELN, uh, the ceasefire has taken effect. How's that going, Derek? Yes, uh, the ceasefire took effect uh, on, on Thursday, actually, when we're uh, recording this. So, uh, you know, I can't say how it's going yet because it's still a little bit early for that. But it has taken effect. This was um, a, an agreement that they negotiated a few months ago. It is the capstone to some degree, at least to date, of Gustavo Petro's effort to negotiate an end to Colombia's multiple armed conflicts and kind of bring the myriad uh, militant groups in that country, you know, out of the cold or, or, or kind of get them out of uh, the, the business of engaging in violence. Uh, ELN is still is the largest at this point rebel group 
active rebel group in Colombia. So this is a this is a huge thing, and and people are going to be watching for the next six months. It's an initial 180 day period. People are going to be watching very closely to see. Uh, what happens now? Uh, we've mentioned, I, I believe, on this show that there are concerns about the sort of focus of the ceasefire, which is you know on violence between the ELN and the government. Uh, a lot of the violence that that ELN gets involved in is not with the government; it's with other armed groups with which it's in competition. So remnants of of FARC or uh, drug cartels or, uh, you know, right-wing paramilitary groups. So this isn't necessarily going to end all of ELN's violence. And the group has, has said it retains the right to defend itself, uh, which, you know, everybody does in, in uh, ceasefires like this. So there is some concern about, you know, how much effect this is actually going to have and what's the government going to do if there's, let's say, a, a you know, flare-up of violence between the ELN and a, a, a paramilitary, another paramilitary group what's what will be the response uh so there's a lot to kind of watch here and and see how things unfold but yes it's come into effect and and i think at least for now you have to say that that's uh, that's a positive development thanks derek uh let's move on to uh medium news perhaps uh a u.n intervention seems to be taking shape in haiti <laughs> yes uh so the long rumored long pushed for uh, international intervention in Haiti to deal with gang violence and uh, basically the breakdown in that country's political and government uh, situation may actually become a reality uh, in the coming days. The Biden administration is reportedly set to introduce a, a resolution at the UN Security Council that would authorize the mission. Uh, I haven't seen any uh, statement of opposition from uh, let's say Russia or China, the two most likely to oppose this, uh, since it's a U.S. initiative. I haven't seen them express uh, any outright opposition. The key here, the key development, because this is obviously something that that the UN has been talking about for a long time. Ariel Henry, the, the uh, notional prime minister of Haiti, has been talking about it for a long time. The U.S. government, the Biden administration, have been talking about it uh, for a long time. Uh, what's happened here in the, the in recent days is the Kenyan government. Uh, announced Kenyan Foreign Minister Alfred Mutua uh, announced over the weekend that Kenya was prepared to lead the operation. So the U.S. has been saying we will support uh, a U.N. intervention, but we don't want to lead it. There is some, you know, optical historical uh, background here where, of the U.S. intervening in Haiti that I think the Biden administration wants to avoid the baggage uh, of that. They had asked Canada to to take the lead. Canada said, no, we're not, we don't really want to take on that responsibility. So they've been kind of casting around for a country to to take the official lead here. And so uh, Mutua said over the weekend that, that Kenya would do it and it would provide uh, some 1,000 police officers to help support and train Haitian personnel. Uh, now, Haiti is a, a catastrophe, Um so you could argue that any intervention would have to necessarily be better than the status quo. But given Haiti's history of uh, foreign interventions, I'm not sure that that's actually the case. Uh, I'm particularly unsure with Kenya, whose police force is internationally notorious for police brutality, uh, whether this is going to really work out the way that uh, the Haitian people uh, might hope. And it's unclear to me, although Henri, as I say, uh, has been very in favor of an intervention. Henri is also unelected. He has no real popular mandate. 
and so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know that you can draw any conclusions about what the actual people of Haiti uh, would feel about how, or how they would feel about something like this. Uh, again, especially given the historical legacy of past interventions in Haiti. Thanks, Derek. And uh, let's conclude with a update on the new Cold War. And let's start with Taiwan's vice president coming to the United States. Yes, uh, I think we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, the, the Taiwanese government confirmed on Wednesday that William Lai, who is the vice president of Taiwan and also considered to be the favorite to win next year's presidential election, will make extended stopovers in New York and San Francisco on his way to and from uh, Paraguayan president-elect Santiago Peña's August 15th inauguration. Uh, this is a common practice for Taiwanese officials. They uh, travel to Latin American countries in particular that, that still have diplomatic relations with Taiwan as opposed to uh, mainland China. And they make these long stopovers in the U.S. so that they can conduct what is basically official business without, you know, without it seeming like official business in a technical sense, because, of course, the U.S. and Taiwan formally don't have uh, diplomatic relations with one another. The Chinese government always complains about this. They always, uh, you know, uh, have something to say about it. Will they, you know, the, the question is whether they will have anything more than words uh, in terms of a response, if there will be any kind of sanctions or anything like that. Uh, we will have to wait and see. But this is something that's been talked about for a few weeks now and, and just became official. Uh, on Wednesday. And let's end with Italy wanting out of the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, this is interesting. The defense minister of Italy, Guido Crosetto, uh, gave an interview that was published on Sunday and suggested that the Italian government is looking for an exit from the Belt and Road Initiative. Italy joined the uh, joined Belt and Road in 2019. It remains uh, that pro project's only European participant. Uh, Crosetto uh, suggested in the interview that, that the reason uh, Italy wants out is because uh, the results of joining BRI have been so lopsided. They've increased Chinese exports to Italy, but done nothing or little or nothing to boost Italian exports to China. Um, I suspect the broader geopolitical context in which uh, Italy uh, and really all of NATO is trying somewhat desperately to be of service to the U.S. in the new Cold War is a bigger factor here. The Italian government, although it is led by the far right, has nevertheless been embraced by the Biden administration. Go figure. Georgia Maloney was just hosted uh, at the White House uh, 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 maybe last week, I think, and, you know, had meetings with with Biden and they seem to get along famously. Mostly this is because Maloney has been uh, all in on the the on support for Ukraine. And, and that's gotten her, I think, a lot of uh, latitude with the Biden administration. Nevertheless, this is a relationship that I think has been um, maybe somewhat surprisingly strong. And uh, Maloney's government may be thinking, you know, it's uh, uh, it would be behoove us to extricate ourselves from this uh, somewhat uh, awkward Belt and Road relationship so that we can, you know, really further our uh, our ties with the U.S. Thank you, Derek, and everyone, thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.